This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the freelancer show in the how did you hear about us section when signing up. This episode is sponsored by nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or a referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D and enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Glass Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 190 of The Freelancer Show. On this week's panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hey, hey. And we have a special guest this week. Our guest is Trevor McKendrick. Welcome, Trevor. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Trevor, tell us all a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so... Um, oh, I'm sorry. And did I say I was Ruben Lerner? I don't know. I always forget to say my name when I'm hosting. Anyway, Trevor, go ahead. Tell us about yourself. Sure thing. So uh, my name is Trevor McKendrick. My background, I went to school to be an accountant. I have a master's and a bachelor's degree in accounting. Um, I was an auditor for uh, a firm called KPMG, which is one of the quote unquote big four. It's like the Google or Facebook of accounting firms, uh, just not nearly as sexy. And uh, worked as an auditor for a couple of years and then quit all that and started uh, making my own um, iOS and well, iOS apps for the iPhone and the iPad. Started a company doing that in 2012, grew that to over a million users, and sold that to a public company in California last September. And uh, now I'm re- now I'm creating a course for uh, freelancers uh, like yourselves and your audience um, on how to do their taxes and and their accounting. So that's me. Okay, so the first of many naive questions is why do we have to know about taxes and accounting? Can't we just hire an accountant to take care of it for us? Yeah, that is a really good, yeah, no, that's a really good common question. And and the reason is because by the time you hire uh, your accountant, you're talking to your accountant, most of the things that you need to do, like the time for that has already passed. 
right? Um, especially if you're just talking to an accountant for the first time. In that case, it's February, March, April of the after the tax year, and then you can't do you can't do anything at that point. And, and not only that, but there's you know if you don't have uh, say you're hiring a CPA to do your taxes, but you don't have a bookkeeper, well then you have to know yourself how to classify transactions because different transactions can be de- you know deducted in different ways and things like that. So once you get bigger, you know if you say you have you know a couple employees or you have a successful product and you have uh, you know a, a bookkeeper and a CPA and you have like you know an outsourced accounting function, then it's more of a solved problem. But when it's just, you know, freelancing and it's just yourself or maybe you're with a partner, uh, it, it makes sense to know some of this stuff yourself. So, Trevor, in your experience, what are some of the more common misunderstandings that freelancers have regarding taxes? Oh, uh, that's a big bucket. So the the most common thing that that, uh, that there's a lot of confusion around and, and, frankly, it's the easiest one to solve and to figure out about is um, has to do with quarterly estimated tax payments. And I'll just ask you guys. You're, I actually I don't know your background. Are you? I assume you guys are freelancers or or something along along those lines. Yeah, I'm a I'm a solo uh, self-employed person. I occasionally bring on uh, subcontractors from time to time. Sure, to sure. Purposes. But yeah, I, I sort of fit that freelancer profile in a lot of ways. Yeah, and so I mean, you I'm sure you're at least somewhat familiar with quarterly estimated payments. But when people are first getting into this or even a couple years in they there's a lot of confusion about well, how much do i have to pay and what, what is it me paying or is it my business paying and do i have to file quarterly or file annually and there's all this confusion right and the rule is is basically whether we know whether the person knows it or not we're we're all in a quarterly pay-as-you-go tax system. It's just normally our employers are taking care of that for us. They do the withholdings, and they, they forward that onto the government for us. So when you're self-employed, you have to do that. Everyone has to do that. And so the rule to, to just real quickly to figure out how much you have to pay so they don't get penalized is take whatever you made last year as reported on your 1040, and I have my website about how to find all these numbers, divided by four, and that's your quarterly tax payment. The one exception is if you make more than $150,000, then uh, you multiply, you divide it by four, and you multiply it by 1.1, and that's your quarterly tax payment. And that's just a really uh, a simple thing that, uh, and I know, I know I'm kind of getting into the weeds here early on, but that's a really simple thing to figure out that a lot of people seem to be confused about. We should, we should probably stress, although maybe it goes without saying, like, I live in Israel, and, like, I know we have many listeners from abroad. We're talking here about U.S. taxes, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, okay. yeah. It's, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I didn't realize your audience was, uh, I guess that makes sense, more international. But, yeah, I mean, taxes are complicated enough in, in one country. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to stick to the U.S. here. What other misunderstandings do you, do you run into out there? I see misunderstandings about you know, what to be afraid of, right? So people might be afraid to take all the deductions that they're entitled to, or they might be, you know, really afraid of an audit when in reality, budgeting for the IRS here in the U.S. has declined over the last couple of years. So not as many audits are are being conducted uh, these years right now. There's, you know, confusion. uh, A common one is, uh, you know, misclassifying employees and independent contractors and, and, and things like that. It's just, there's it's just, a, you know, a, a number of things that any freelancer getting into um, whatever business that they are, they should just be aware of. And it can save you a lot of stress and it can save you real money too, um, especially when it comes to, to deductions. Deductions save you both on your self-employment taxes and your, your income tax. So if you're afraid to take a deduction because you're, you know, you think you might get audited or the IRS might be upset, 
Um, that's a really, uh, it's a poor business decision to make, especially if it's justifiable and you can back it up. You should be taking all those that you can. At the same time, though, you seem to be saying, I mean, I guess you are saying that, you know, if a client pays me, let's say $5,000, then it would be really, really foolish for me to go and spend that $5,000. I should be taking some of that and putting it aside because within the next three months, I will need to package some of that up and hand it to the IRS um, as part of my quarterly tax return. Or payment. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're answering the question yourself there. Anyone who gets uh, a check, any check from a client as an independent contractor, when there's no taxes at all being withheld, needs to absolutely put some of that aside, not only for end of the year taxes, but for your quarterly tax payment as well. Well, does that happen? I mean, I know in Israel, for instance, every time I work with a client, I have to give them a special government form that says, you don't need to withhold taxes because I pay my taxes. And it's something that I get from the government every six months or so or a year or so. And my accountant gives it to me and like basically says they don't have to, but otherwise they would. Are there cases in the U.S. when your clients would withhold taxes for you? Not that I'm aware of. No. Um, I mean, there might be. I th- I think I've heard of that when you're dealing with uh, if I'm in the U.S. and I'm dealing with a foreign contractor, then there's there's specific rules for that. But if you're dealing with a contractor here in the U.S., uh, generally, that is not not just generally. Ninety nine percent of the time, that's that's not the case. You just pay them, and then at the end of the year. Uh, well, I should take a step back. When when you hire someone, when you pay them as a, a contractor, you they should need to provide to you what's called a W-9. And a W-9 is just a form that the IRS provides that lets them give you the information like either their EIN or their social security number that at the end of the year will let you issue them a 1099. And the 1099 goes to the IRS and it goes to them. And that's what lets the IRS know that, hey, this contractor received some income. And so if uh, we need to be aware that they should be reporting this income on their on their own uh, income tax statements at the end of the year. Trevor, what do you see freelancers who are successful at minimizing their tax burden do that others don't? That's a Is great- there some kind of insider knowledge? Is there a secret trick we, we should know about? What do you see them doing? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a really good question. And it's uh, not a secret. It's not, you know, this super fancy trick. It's just boring. And, and what it is, <laughs> is it's just uh, having really good books, like being really diligent with your record keeping. And so what does that mean? So that means whether it's you, you're doing it yourself or hiring, you know, a bookkeeper for 20 bucks an hour. But at the end of every month, get in your bank statement and your credit card statement and creating an income statement, you know, classifying all of your expenses by category, classifying all of your income. Um, and then of course, keeping the receipts to go along with, uh, with those expenses in case they're in the case of an audit. But that way, when you do it every month, instead of scrambling at the end of the year, you're more likely to make sure that you have all of your expenses on, in one place. Um, what also happens sometimes with some freelancers I've seen is some, something will come up from, for whatever reason, they have to pay an expense from their personal account for, they don't have their business credit card out of them or whatever the case is. And, and if you're not diligent with your record keeping, you'll forget about that expense. And even though you paid for it personally, it's still deductible um, at the end of the year. And so the, the number one, you know, secret or number one way to, to make sure that you, you maximize on your deductions and, and uh, have a really solid return is just by having really good, really good records. Interesting. So, so those could be paper, I assume, but a lot of that's going to be online, right? Um, is there anything that I need to know about 
record keeping that's that's not kind of obvious no so i mean you could no not at all there's you, you can do it however you want i would be surprised frankly if if most of your records were paper i mean the only what i do personally is uh, the only paper i have are, are my receipts and i take a picture of those and upload them and store them on you know on my computer or to the cloud and then i throw away the receipts that's the only paper that i have you I mean the, the best system is the one that you actually use and so whatever it is that works for you, whether if it's accounting software, if you have more complicated books, if you, you know, only have a couple of transactions a month, you can do it in Excel, uh, whatever, whatever it is that works for you is, I think, uh, the, the best, the best way to do it. And in, in your experience, you know, what are, what are some of the problems that you yourself or have seen other freelancers run into? Maybe something that, you know, you wish you had known beforehand or, you know, things that you kind of learned with the trade along the way. You know, uh, one of the things that surprised me when I was starting out was that you can be really unsuccessful as a freelancer and still owe taxes. I don't know. That was kind of like almost a cognitive distortion about, like, I just kind of thought if you were barely scraping by, you didn't really pay taxes. Uh, but that's not true, especially when you go into business for yourself. It was a really uh, interesting wake up for me. When you say, I mean, you don't have to give you know specific numbers, but when you say you know barely scraping by or, or not super successful, um, are we? Are, what, you know, what kind of what level of income are we are we talking about? And is this where you know were your expenses particularly high, or or this was the only thing you were doing? Or I guess give you a little more color on that. Yeah, in 2008, um, I, along with a lot of other people, got laid off, and I went into uh, freelancing thinking, "Oh man, this is this is going to be easy. You know, I get to be the boss, so I don't, I'm not going to make any mistakes like, uh, you know, like like my previous boss did or whatever. Like that was kind of my attitude, right? <laughs> and um, and wow, did I did I make a lot of mistakes? And a lot of them were around you know, managing cash and, you know, marketing myself improperly. And, and then some of them were around this idea that I was like, well, I am making probably like my first year freelancing. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I I guess I made at most like half of what I made as a, as a full-time employee, maybe a third, even it was terrible. And so it was like, in my mind, I was like, wow, I'm just above the poverty level here. Uh, in reality, I was probably uh-huh. uh, well above the poverty level, but still it felt, you know, I think that's where the cognitive mismatch came in. I felt like I was scraping by, but by, uh, you know, by IRS standards, I was, I was making some money. And so uh, taxes were owed. Sure. And it just kind of took me a while to realize that I needed to be making tax payments. I, I make them every month. I, I make estimated tax payments monthly because uh, even quarterly is just too long of a horizon to, to manage that cash easily. Sure. I, and that's that's an interesting point that you bring up about comparing your freelancer income to a salary income because they're, they're really apples to oranges. I mean, for a couple different reasons. One, so freelancer income, you're going to have deductions and expenses that net against it, right? So your actual income that's reported to the, uh, or I should say, your, your, yeah, your actual income reported to the IRS is going to be lower than your freelancer income because you're going to have some expenses. But at the same time, whatever income you have left over are going to have more taxes taken out of it uh, because of you're paying both sides to the self-employment tax, right? And I know there's uh, a lot of people talk about self-employment tax and it's 15%. Why is it so high? But really, it's as an employee, 
you're paying it's around seven and a half percent payroll tax, and your employer pays the other seven and a half percent. But when you're self-employed, you pay both of those. And so, comparing freelancer income to uh, salary income isn't always a great comparison because more taxes um, are generally going to be taken out of a, a freelancer income when it, when it's reported to the IRS. That was a huge realization that took about, I'm going to say about three years for me to, to come to terms with. Is it, you know, my only point of reference prior to that was uh, like working for the man. And so when, when I entered the world of freelancing, the whole idea of how you, how you look at revenue and understand what's enough and, and all that just took a while to figure out for me. It was really interesting. Absolutely. So, uh, so one of the benefits, though, of being, and I want to ask you about this, of, of being a freelancer and an independent contractor is that all of a sudden you are exposed to, in, in, a, in a good way, exposed to business deductions for things that as a, as a salaried employee you were not able to take, whether that's, you know, a home office or your cell phone or your computer gear or all the software that you buy, all of these uh, you know, these different things that are required to do your job. How, how have you been in, you know, in making sure to get those deductions over the years? Or have you been, you know, uh, more aggressive? Or have you gone with the uh, the advice of an accountant or just figured it out on your own? Kind of how have you gone about uh, figuring that out? Well, that's an awesome question. Uh, it, you know, it kind of took a while. I, and I think, again, kind of getting back to that, that beginner's mentality, at least for me, the whole idea of the IRS was kind of terrifying to me. The fact that they could, you know, insist on an audit of your, you know, tax filings or whatever, that was kind of a, in my mind, this monster that you wanted to avoid at all, at all costs. Sure. Nowadays, I don't see that as a horrible thing because, uh, I assume if that happened, you could, you have the option of just refiling your taxes for that year. That would be an interesting thing, thing for you to clarify if you feel like it. But your question was, uh, about, you know, sort of level of aggressiveness. And I, I would say I'm on the higher end of the aggressiveness scale now when it comes to looking at, at things as, as a potential expense for my business or not. So. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty hip to that, or at least <laughs> aggressive about it, but it took a while to get there. And part of it was just because of this idea that your life would be over if the IRS decided yeah. to audit you. Yeah, I mean, I'm an accountant, and I still feel a little bit of that because it, I mean, it's, it is this like very abstract, I don't know, big brother or something, you know, kind of all-powerful uh, force in the background. You know, you read about like the IRS has, you know, more access or more power than, you know, almost any other uh, agency of the government. And it's true. I mean, if you owe the tax, they're going to get it from you one way or another, right? That's just going to happen. Uh, but on the flip side, you know, audits don't happen, I don't think, as as, as often as people think. Roughly, um, right now, about 1% of returns uh, get audited every year. And that's uh, weighted more towards the... Um, the higher end of income, and that's just a practical reason: is that the IRS they only they have limited resources, and so they're going to go after returns where they're most likely to get the the biggest bang for their buck. Uh, I, would, I would venture to guess most people actually do not personally know someone who's been audited by the IRS, and so any I'm sure I do. Like I know I've heard okay. stories from people I know, but I couldn't name. I mean, not that I do on the podcast, right? Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Uncle Joe, no, but um. But I, I, I 
do remember hearing stories here and there, and they seemed pretty horrible, and they were mostly horrible in the sense of suddenly you had to get all this paperwork together that you no longer knew or cared about. Um, right. And so yes. if you sort of have every... If you, so, so, like, again, I know it's a different system, but here in Israel, um, you have to keep all of your paperwork for seven years so that the if the government decides to audit you. And so every year when I go and sign off on my taxes and so forth with my accountant, either then or about a month or so later, he says, okay, time to pick up your paperwork. And I have this ridiculous number of binders full of paper from the last seven years. Um, so that if and when they come and audit me, I can say, look, I have my paperwork in order. And of course, what would really happen is they would talk to my accountant because I would have no idea what to tell them, but at least having it is better than not having it. Yeah. And that, you know, that goes back to being really diligent in your record keeping. Because for me, um, fortunately, all of my stuff is electronic. And so if I ever got, I got, I mean, I'll keep my stuff for, uh, seven, 10, 20 years, right? It's just, you know, more zeros and ones on my hard drive, right? So it's no big deal. But what's more important, I, th- at least, I think for, for me and for a lot of people is, is having good records to rely on, right? Cause, you know, after two or three years when the you know, IRS comes to audit you and you look back at old return, oh my gosh. And I've gone through this where it's just, you're like, I don't remember doing any of this. Like, where in my brain is this memory stored? Cause it is, it is not here. But the thing is, it's funny that you mentioned about, um, you know, everyone, you know, or not many people know someone who's been audited. Well, when we think like of like, like an audit, like a capital A audit, we think of like the IRS flying their people out to our, our home or our offices, <laughs> and sitting with us and interviewing us. And maybe in one of the agents got a gun or something crazy. Right. And that's like, extreme like movie version of audit and yes those do happen right but like a much more common form of audit at least in the u.s there's different types of audits and there's three well there's four but there's three ones that people should really know about and one um we'll start off with a really serious one is what's called a field audit and that's what i'm describing is where they come out to your home or office they sit down, they want to see your whole return, they want to see all the documentation, and it's a really aggressive thing, and it's, it's, it's as scary as it seems, but it is, it's very rare, and it's mostly for cases where they're either making a lot of money, or there's like some really fishy stuff going on, right? And then the second level is we, you have an office audit, where they ask you, well, commander, I guess it's in the government, they, they tell you to do it, but you go and you, you go to the local IRS office to meet with them, and they want to see, you know, a couple of, I want to see documentation for a couple of deductions or transactions. They're not, may, they might want to see the whole return, but it's more likely they just want to see a specific part and they want to see the documentation. You go to them. And then there's the highest level or the, you know, the lightest level of audit, which is just called a correspondence audit. And that's literally just a letter in the mail from the IRS. And that's saying, hey, we think you owe this much more, either pay it or prove that you don't. Or instead of demanding payment, sometimes it'll be, you know, can you, can you send us in this documentation? And so that counts as an audit. And I bet you uh, more people have kind of got one of those letters from the IRS than most people realize. But at the same time, it's not something you exactly talk about with people. A and B, you don't really, it doesn't really feel like an audit. You don't consider an audit, but, but that happens to people. And again, this all falls under the, the 1% rubric that I was, that I mentioned earlier, but that kind of stuff happens and there's no reason to freak out. If you've done your taxes correctly and you have the documentation, you're going to be fine. Yeah. I've uh, had the privilege of dealing with the IRS quite a bit because of uh, how much of a dummy I was when I started working for myself. So I've done things, you know, I've filed a uh, offer and compromise for back taxes. 
Like I've, okay. I've been further inside the, uh, you know, the bowels of the IRS than I suspect a lot of people have. And after all that experience, I feel like the, I mean, to me, I would personify the IRS as a, a sort of polite older gentleman who's extremely fastidious and does everything at about the slowest possible speed you can imagine. <laughs> Uh, like, you know, walking with a cane, <laughs> their customer service reps are better trained and more polite than most I've ever dealt with. Uh, Apple's the only company where I've had a better customer service experience over the phone. And they just, after that, all that experience, I don't feel like they're out to get me. I feel like they're out to make sure they don't lose their job by accidentally granting somebody an exception they're not, a, not entitled to. Under yeah. their, you know, very, uh, complex rules about things. So it's actually, I, I mean, I have a much more positive feelings about IRS than I do about, I don't know, Dell Computer. Comcast. Uh, Comcast. There you go. Yeah, I'd, I'd rank I, the IRS way above Comcast in terms of customer satisfaction. Yeah, I had, I had to deal with them years ago. It was probably like a good six, seven years ago already. And I was dealing with an American client, and I had to call the IRS because I still have to file American taxes, um, even though because I'm a citizen, but I live abroad. And I was really surprised by how easy and decent they were to deal with. And they said, oh, you need these documents. I think they had, what, what is it you get like as a co contractor? I think it was a W-9, you said. Like they had them all on file and they could just email them to me. And I was really quite impressed. Yeah, I, I think it goes to, it speaks to the point of they're not interested in hurting you. They're more interested in getting to the truth so that they can save their jobs, right? I mean, the entire accounting profession and legal profession and most big companies and organizations, to be honest, op operate under a CYA philosophy. I expect most of the IRS to be to be the same way. So, Trevor, I've got a question on a slightly different uh, note. What if someone becomes dramatically more successful in the course of a year? So they're freelancer or uh, I mean, I sense you may have some experience with this in selling a company, but same thing could apply to a freelancer. You're kind of chugging along, you know, things are flat, and they sub figure some things out, and all of a sudden their income doubles or something like that. Mm -hmm. What kind of problems should, not problems, but what things should they be on the alert for with regard to their taxes now that they have this new, more uh, prosperous revenue situation? Let, let, sure. me, let, me, let me jump in for a second and say, this just happened to me this week. Right. So basically like in last year, I told the training company through which I was working that I would stop working with them. I was going to go back to doing uh, training directly with companies. And, you know, I'm very happy to say that the companies decided to move to going with me directly. And my income more or less doubled overnight because instead of this training company taking a cut, I was now getting all the money, which was great. Except that my estimates, and again, it works a little differently in Israel, but my estimates were based on what I'd been making until October, say, November. And so my accountant called me like two days ago, three days ago, and said, I don't know what happened here, but like our estimates for your annual income were just completely <laughs> off. You owe a lot of taxes for 2015 now. And so like we're, we're, we're like doing an initial payment, we're doing some uh, like uh, installments, but like this can definitely happen. And as you said, it's a good problem to have. Uh, so I'm curious to hear like, how, how maybe I should have prepared for this as opposed to getting that surprise call? Yeah, so I don't know how it works uh, in Israel, obviously, but in the U.S., there's literally, there's just two things to do. One is, refer to the earlier rule I said about quarterly estimated tax payments. So if in, in your quarterly estimates, if you pay 100% of the tax that you paid in the prior tax year, right? So say 
uh, you know, 2014, you pay, let's just say you paid $20,000 in taxes, right? In 2015, you have an amazing year. You sell your company for a hundred million dollars and you have no idea what to do with your taxes, whatever, whatever. If you pay in quarterly payments in 2015, the same $20,000 that you did in 2014, you won't get penalized and won't have to pay any interest on late payments. Like that is the rule of the IRS. So that's one. Number two is, and this is um, an easy fix because you have the money, but number two is just don't spend all your money, right? Like you made a bunch of extra money, set some of it aside for the tax bill at the end of the year. So I can tell you like my case, like, so I sold my company. It was just me and a bunch of contractors. I sold my company for half a million dollars last year. And I, on the high side, I estimated my taxes are going to be, you know, a hundred K for that. So I have a hundred K just sitting aside in a bank account that is ready for the tax man when I file in a month or two. Is it going to end up being that much? I don't think so. Especially if you take away the quarterly payments that I made for last year. But it's just set aside. It's ready for the tax man. We just have to file, and then I send him the payment. And as long as you do t- those two things, you're going to be fine. That's what I would recommend here in the U.S. This gets a little, uh, I suppose, political, but uh, I love how my, my wife refers to the IRS as our business partner. <laughs> I mean, they're not like really, but it, to me it helps to think of it that way because, uh, you know, in some way that money is creating an environment where, you know, it's somewhat friendly to business here in the U.S., especially relative to places in Europe and so forth. So that's how I like to think about that. It helps me, you know, mentally part with that money aside from being legally required to. Helps you part with it in the sense that I'm like, like, oh, it could be worse. It's, or? it's to my business partner. They're owed that money. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a very, uh, yeah, European take on paying taxes. <laughs> so how aggressive can you be with this, the deductions? Oh, I mean, there's whole books written on the topic. Um, th- I think the, the the best way to maximize your deductions in the, in a legal way is to, and I, I know I keep preaching the same song here, but is to have good records and have your expenses classified correctly, right? Because if you have your books in order and you have all of your expenses classified, whether it's office supplies or marketing or your, you know, your, your utilities from where you work, whether that's home or an office and travel and all these different things. If those are all classified correctly, then you don't have to know all of the rules. You don't have to know how all the deductions works. Then you can actually go to an accountant like you should at the end of the year and say, here's all of my actual expenses. You know, then, and you can ask them, you know, which taking some of these, what would the, would they, would this be more aggressive or less aggressive? Or what are the rules for these different, different expenses, right? Because some expenses are deductible and some aren't. And there's all these nitpicky rules, um, that you, as a freelancer, you don't want to have to learn or know about. You just want to be able to go to an accountant and have them help you out. Um, and so again, it comes back to just having, keeping track of, of your income or, and your expensive and, and doing really good books. Um, I will say one thing that, you know, people uh, sometimes overlook is like the home office deduction, where if you work out of home, the IRS lets you deduct either some of the utilities and rent or uh, mortgage interest on your home, or there's a formula to calculate, you know, the, the square footage of your office is um, an easy one to do. It's also, you're more slightly more prone to be audited if you take that deduction, but it's one of those things that it's easy to do. It's right. It's uh, legal um, that you can easily figure out, and, you know, 
just puts a little bit of extra money into your pocket. Yeah, I have heard that that's a like a, a sort of an indicator that you're more likely to get an audit. Are there other things that are, you know? Yes, there are actually. Um, another uh, more common one is uh, if you, now we're really going to get into the weeds, but if the entity that you, if your business entity is an S corporation, the reason freelancers set up S corporations is to save on self-employment tax, right? So the way it works is that say your company in profit makes $200,000 in a year, Normally, you would have to pay self-employment tax on the whole 200K if you were just giving yourself a distribution. But if you instead set up an S-Corp and pay yourself a quote-unquote reasonable salary, whether that's 50 or 100K, whatever it is, let's say it's, let's say it's 75K, then you only pay self-employment tax on the 75K and you take a distribution on the remaining 125K. And that 125k is not subject to self-employment tax. Uh, I know this is a lot of numbers and boring stuff to listen to in a podcast. I apologize. But to answer your question, because this is such a easy and fairly common way of avoiding self-employment tax, and it's, it's correct to do, but sometimes people will be too aggressive. And they will pay themselves instead of saying, you know, a salary of 75k or whatever, that whatever is actually reasonable, they'll pay themselves 10k or 20k or 5k, right? And the IRS, especially in the last couple of years, has really started to nail down on those and to go after people that aren't paying the proper amount in self-employment tax because they're not paying themselves high enough of a salary. Hmm. Yeah, we, we have, have, you, have you heard of that before, or is that totally new to you, or somewhere in between? I, I've heard of something uh, similar. I mean, my wife and I own our company. And I mean, I have an employee also, but basically my account has made it clear that we can't just sort of arbitrarily raise my salary my, or we can't arbitrarily raise my wife's salary so that the taxes are split up. He said, look, gotcha. you, know, you, you know, you have to be realistic because the tax authorities will notice what people are supposed to be paid and how much you're actually paying them. And you have to be reasonable about it. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've heard the same sort of thing here in the U.S. You know, back to the categorization of expenses, how granular should you be like? Let's, let's go do an example. Let's say that uh, someone buys a computer and, you know, a little stereo system for their office and some furniture and, you know, they paint the office as well. Are all those office expenses or should they be categorized separately? Yeah, that's uh, that's a tricky question. I don't know if I have a, a, a great answer for this on how to figure this out on, on your own. I think the best strategy, if you're really bootstrapping it and want to do your books by yourself, and, you know, you maybe have an Excel spreadsheet or whatever you're keeping track of the things is make it as, I mean, you don't want to make it too granular or else you're just, I mean, too granular is just a list of transactions, not useful. And then too narrow, uh, of course, is not useful. Then, you, you know, you're, you might be breaking some deductionals with the IRS. And so I would do your best. I mean, use common sense, right? If if you're buying a chair for your office, that's going to, you know, it's going to be office expense or furniture expense. If you're, you know, if you're traveling on business, I mean, that's that's travel. Break it out between, uh, you know, hotels and travel and, and, and meals and all that. And really, uh, unfortunately, I think the best answer for this is if not hiring a bookkeeper, at least talking to a bookkeeper the first couple of months when you go through your transactions. And bookkeepers are relatively inexpensive, especially compared to CPAs. I would almost recommend getting a bookkeeper just always in general to your books. But if you're really, you know, trying to don't want to pay the extra 20 or 30, 40 bucks a month to and just do it yourself, I would try and do it yourself, tag the things that you're not sure about. 
corporate bookkeeper say, hey, can I talk to you for an hour? How would you do this? And then you can learn that way going along. Because this is, I mean, it is hard. It is hard to get this 100% perfectly right if you're not an accountant, if you don't know how the IRS looks at different categories and things like that. So I would say first attack with common sense and then, you know, talk to a bookkeeper on the cheap if you don't want to hire someone. Cool. Here's another uh, annoying question. <laughs> what are the mistakes that are most costly when it comes to taxes in general? And I imagine this may overlap with some of what we've already talked about, but are there other sort of like big landmines people should watch out for? Most costly. I'm trying to trying to think here. I mean, the worst thing you can do is not, you know, not report income and then be audited and then have to pay, you know, interest and, and penalties on, on missed income. I'm trying to think most costly. This is specific to developers and it's kind of niche, but one thing I've heard of is, and as a iOS person myself, I've, I've, uh, I've seen this happen where and this actually isn't just developers, but when you get paid, when you charge someone through PayPal or Stripe or you sell an app in the Apple's App Store or the Google Play Store or you use Square, there's this new form that started a couple of years ago called a 1099K that the merchant has to provide to the business owner. And what's tricky about this 1099K is that it reports on the gross, right? So for in the example of, you know, if you use, you guys bring with your Stripe? Yep. Okay, so if you use like Stripe to, say you have an e-commerce store and you use Stripe, so Stripe's going to take out their cut and they're going to report the gross, um, same with like Apple. Apple, you know, say you sell an app for $10, Apple keeps three and they give you seven, but they're going to report the gross of 10 to the IRS. But, but as the recipients of the cash, I mean, me personally and most of the developers I know, we don't even think about the extra $3. We don't think about the Stripe fee. It doesn't even enter our mind. We don't even include it in revenue, right, on our income statements. But with, because of this 1099K, that's incorrect. You have to report the gross and then show the expenses as the Stripe fee or the Apple fee or whatever it is. And it nets to the same amount of tax, but you have to show those fees. And to answer your question, the reason this can be costly is because you're in the case of um, Apple and Google, if you don't report the gross as income, then you are underreporting your income by 30%, right? Ooh. And then the IRS Ooh. freaks out. Yeah. And, and it's not something like that's going to be difficult for them to find out. Like they are literally, the IRS gets the 1099K. It says the number they do in their computer. They compare it to your number. It's off by 30% and they come talking to you, right? So it's not a difficult thing for them to figure out. And so that's um, a specific thing that can be really costly. And, and to be honest, you know, I've talked to people who've run into this problem and they freak out. They go talk to an accountant. The accountant sends a, you know, nicely formatted, well-worded letter to the IRS explaining what happened. And I hear that people have been, they get off okay. And again, you know, don't be so afraid of the IRS. If what you actually, if what happened to you was uh, a real expense and you didn't report the expense along with the, the income, you're probably going to be okay. Um, but it's just something to, to be aware of. You just can, can avoid up front. Interesting. I actually had to deal with, I've had to deal with exactly that because, for instance, my ebooks, I sell them through Gumroad. I mean, I guess, Philip, you do too. And oh, so, yeah, same thing. Right. And so I have to report not the amount that they actually, I'm trying to remember. Actually, I'm trying to remember that now. No, I, I, I was thinking actually of when I get bank transfers from companies abroad, I have to report how much they paid, not how much I received. I should probably check on Gumroad. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, so the IRS gets... doesn't listen to our recording. 
That's going to be a giant pain. I, I was aware of that sort of fundamental problem. And I mean, a, a large part of my services revenue gets handled by either Stripe or PayPal. Yeah. I haven't, I have not cashed a paper check in, I, in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it, so it becomes troublesome because a lot of the reports that you're getting from, I use SendAl rather than Gumroad, but it's the same idea. And so you'll get reports that show you like both the net and the gross and it just kind of be- becomes something you have to think about every time you, you deal with those numbers. But I think that brings up an interesting question of like, is there something fundamentally different about product revenue? I know a lot of freelancers just, you know, are dreaming about bringing in some stream of revenue that doesn't depend on their time. And does that change anything fundamentally when you start getting product revenue in terms of your tax situation? I don't think so. I mean, not fundamentally. I mean, as a, you know, providing services, you you know, you're probably going to be getting a bunch of uh, 1099s that if you're selling products, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about. But as far as dealing with reporting income or reporting on expenses, uh, no, there aren't going to be any, uh, any significant differences there off the, at least off the top of my head. But, um, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, same with you know most businesses. I mean, as income is income, and your expenses are your expenses. It's uh, it's generally, especially in this freelancer, you know, selling services, selling products area, it's going to be pretty similar. That's good to know. Yeah, and going back to the you know the Gumroad and the 1099k issue, it's been alarming because it's it you know it is this new form, and and uh, what you know a lot of times you're not sure if the provider is is uh, you know has the wrong number or if you just didn't know the right number and it, it can be a little scary at first and i encountered this last year but what ended up happening is we initially uh, we filed one return and then after the fact apple sent me this 1099k and so i had filed the return that underreported my income by 30 percent and so my accountant apparently he uh, thankfully he had a lot of clients in a similar situation with this form and he's like oh it's no big deal i'll just refile and you know he bumps up the revenue he bumps up the deduction by the same amount and it always nets to the same, which is making sure that you include it in the return. So it, at first I was like terrified and scared that we'd filed my return incorrectly. And to my accountant, it was like no big deal. And he took care of it like in a day. And I think A speaks to, again, don't be afraid of the IRS if you're doing things correctly. And B, make sure you have, you know, a good accountant that you like that you can trust. Which speaking of which, actually, how did you, how did you guys find your accountants? What was was, you know, I hear most people go through a couple of accountants until they find someone that they like. I don't know if that was something you guys went through, but how did that process work? I just want to briefly say it's good to hear that a former CPA is also uh, sometimes terrified of the IRS. That's not just <laughs> <me>. <laughs> yeah, I think a healthy dose of fear is good when you're doing your taxes. <laughs> Philip, you go first. How did you find your accountant? Oh, I don't have an accountant. Oh, uh, I just <laughs> that was myself. Easy. <laughs> I don't, well, I don't. there you go. Impressive. <laughs> you should you should be doing this podcast, not me, man. You got all the expertise yourself. Wow. Uh, you know, I think if people followed my advice, they would also be in a world of trouble from time to time. <laughs> I mean, on taxes. So I mean, my uh, yeah, my situation is a little complicated. So I mean, I'm a U.S. citizen, so I have to pay U.S. taxes. And before I moved to Israel in '95, I knew I was going to set up as a consultant, and I found out that even if you're uh, living abroad and you have to pay U.S. taxes. That's not only true for taxes, but that's true for self-employment tax if you are self-employed. And so the number one thing that I was told was don't register, and you have to register in Israel as self-employed, rather form a company and be an employee of that company, and then you don't have to pay self-employment tax. But in order to do that, you have to have an accountant, and you have to go through all sorts of rigmarole. 
So when I first moved to Israel, someone suggested, hey, why don't you talk to someone I know? He's an accountant. And I was with him for a few years until I got married and moved to a different city. And he was really nice. But now I see he really like made some bad decisions for me. And my current accountant, he has a medium-sized office. He has probably like 15, 20 people working for him. And so I have my bookkeeper, who's not just you know working for me, working for a bunch of other people, but she knows me and my business really well. And I basically dump her a, a lot of paperwork every month. Um, and the accountant himself deals with the high-level stuff for when I have questions. Now, is he really doing a great job? It's hard for me to know, but they seem to be on top of things. And when someone said to me, oh, my God, you're paying so much for your accountant, and I looked around, I could not find anyone who was cheaper uh, who would also offer me the same level of service. So you know, I feel in many ways that finding an accountant is sort of – I'm in the same position now as many of my clients are, right? They don't know how to evaluate, at least if I'm doing software yep. work, if I'm doing a good job yep. or not. So I get good vibes. He seems responsive. He has good people on his staff who do who haven't messed up too much so far. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep going with him. Sure. Yeah, I feel like, you know, 70% of what you're paying in an accountant is like peace of mind is, you know, do I feel like they're, you know, they've actually taken care of it? And you, I was going to say the exact same thing that, it, you know, I feel, you know, trying to evaluate like a developer when you know nothing about code is like impossible. I mean, how do you know how good they are? And it's the same when, you know, talking to an accountant and you, uh, you know, you don't know anything about accounting. Yeah, it's, it, it can be, uh, it can be hard to find a, a good accountant. What I found in the U.S., at least to be um, a, a pretty good way of evaluating people is so ideally your accountant has other clients in the same industry as you so that th so that this is an area that they're dealing with frequently and so one of the ways that you can really evaluate whether that's true or not is by asking them questions that are very specific to your business and kind of getting into the weeds and seeing what you know really just testing their knowledge because obviously you know your business better than anybody right and an accountant who has multiple clients in the same field as you in the same industry should also be fairly knowledgeable, right? And if they're not, if they're hemming and hawing, if they're speaking too broadly, uh, then, it, you know, they might not be um, a great fit for you. So that's, you know, that's that's one thing that I recommend when people are looking for accountants. I'll, I'll say, by the way, also, uh, Philip, so during the four years we lived in Chicago when I was doing my PhD coursework, I said, oh, no, I have to worry about U.S. taxes. I know, like, I, I'm a, you know, above average smart guy. I'll go buy <laughs> TurboTax and I'll just do my taxes that way. Oh my God, it was hell on earth. <laughs> and I'm sure I did everything wrong. And like, like the, the, basically I'm in awe that you do this yourself. I mean, I did it myself when I was, you know, 19 and my total savings was like $200 and I had no real income. But as a real person to do my taxes, that was one of the hugest mistakes I made as far as I'm concerned when I was living in the U.S. Well, yeah, the, yeah, the software is really good. I mean, this is speaking for me. I've, you know, I used TurboTax for a number of years too. And it's really good until you start getting into like kind of like idiosyncratic position. I mean, like living in Israel as a U.S. citizen, like, yeah, I would not definitely not use TurboTax for that. And I should say I have a very simple, you know, tax situation. I don't have, uh, you know, depreciating assets and stuff yeah. like that. Exactly. And so, yeah, the more the more straightforward the tax situation, you know, the more sense a, a software solution can make. Reuven, Reuven, with you, with, um, I don't know how familiar you are. I mean, obviously, you're a U.S. citizen, but uh, I'd be curious to hear about, like, the, the tax and the kind of the business acumen of the two countries. Like, how do they compare? How does it how does it compare working in the U.S. versus working in Israel, um, being self-employed and, and dealing with kind of with the, the, the two different regulatory environments? So that first accountant I mentioned when I first moved to Israel asked me if I'd ever run a business before. 
And I said, no. And he said, good. You'll think the way we do it in Israel is normal. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And um, it's true. Like it's a, it is a totally different system. So first of all, basically, if you receive any income by Israeli, like by Israeli law, and I'm sure there's some threshold. So like babysitters don't have to do this, but you have to register as self-employed with the government, which basically means you are a business. I, I forget exactly what the term is in the U.S., but like your business, and you then have to report to the government your income. And if it's above a certain level, then you have to uh, take that, which is sort of like sales tax in many ways. Um, so it's more or less illegal to accept any money from anyone, even if like you just want to help someone out. It then becomes this whole affair where someone needs to fill out the tax forms, and it's, it's, a, it's a pain. But like if you've got a business like I do, I mean, you're not just self-employed, then I set up a company, and I have to report to three different tax authorities every month or every other month, depending on the size of the company. One is income tax. One is VAT, again, like the sales tax types of thing. And the third is national insurance, which is like uh, social security. But once you get it set up, it's really very smooth. Like the calculations, everything is computerized now. So like when my accountant called me two, three days ago and said, listen, you need to make this tax payment. I said, oh, well, I guess I could do the bank transfer. They said, no, no, no. Like we are hooked up. We, your accountant, are hooked up to the tax authority and to your bank account, and we could just do that, and it'll be done, you know, in within a day. So everything is highly automated, highly computerized. I actually have no idea how easy or hard it is to deal with the government offices, like unlike what we were talking about the IRS before, because mm-hmm. I don't deal with them directly. My accountant does all that, but gotcha. the the bonus there is they deal with them all the time, so they know the people and they're familiar with them. Absolutely. No, that's, that's uh, absolutely true. I mean, yeah, and, and basically, like, if you, yeah, yeah. I mean, where, where things started to get complicated, or I guess more complicated, is if you work in more than one place. Oh, the, the other thing is Israelis never file tax returns. And that's not because, like, everyone's a scoff law. It's because the only people who have to file tax returns each year are business owners and the wealthy. So your average Israeli never files anything. It's Even all thinks t- about it. It's, right, it's all taken out at source. Interesting. Um, which yeah, it's one of those at, things. I, yeah, go ahead. No, if you work at more than one place, then then you have to file a form with the government saying I work at more than one place, so you should take out less in the second because it's the higher bracket or lower gotcha. bracket. Or yep, yep. Um, it's interesting because you know I, I don't know if you guys have heard about Estonia's e-residency and the way they do taxes, but uh, basically every citizen of of Estonia is given an ID, and basically every transaction that that person experiences whether in their business or personal whatever it all it's all tracked by the government so doing their taxes at the end of the year is literally like clicking through like three different buttons and they're done with their taxes so which to me in the u.s sounds like amazing but then then you have like you know in the u.s at least you have these and i guess we're gonna i'm getting off topic here but you have you know people that are like privacy prone i guess and so the idea of like all this information being tracked by the government just like outrages them and frustrates them and i mean uh i i can kind of see both sides but it does seem like just a dream world where like like filing the tax taxes in the u.s is just such a nightmare like it you know i have like old accounting professors right who are still stubborn and do their own taxes and it takes them like a day and they have like a phd in taxes or whatever it's like this is crazy like this doesn't make any sense so uh, yeah it's um you know, one of the, I love the U.S. and there's lots of great things about the U.S. But it's, it's uh, our tax system. I don't think is uh, one of our strengths, unfortunately. In terms of privacy and ID, like basically, if I go to a government office, I show my ID card, right? Now, as opposed to in the U.S., I remember when I had to get a driver's license there, right? You carry basically a suitcase full of documentation so that the combination <laughs> of them is your ID, as opposed to because no one wants to have an ID. 
So, anyway. I'm sure yeah. if Chuck were on, we'd hear an earful about <laughs> how good that is. But, haha, he's not here today. He, uh, he lives in, uh, is it Lehigh, Utah? Is that right? Somewhere around there, I think, yeah. Yeah, I lived, I went to school like 10 minutes away from where he lives. So I'm, I'm very, I can almost, I could be his side of the political argument for him, I bet. <laughs> um, any other questions or comments, things people should know? Or, or maybe, you know what, maybe, maybe are there any um, resources people can and should look at when they're running their own business, like good books or websites? And if I'm stealing from your picks, then I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I was actually just going to go over my picks. Can I just do that? Is that okay? Sure. Philip, do you have any more questions for Trevor? Oh, right. is the picks, like, I didn't realize the picks was, like, definitely at the end. I apologize. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> like, the, the, the podcast authorities give us trouble. <laughs> <laughs> they, they audit this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, rest my case, I am done with this cross-examination, and uh, <laughs> we can move on to picks. Great. So, yeah, so I've... Just three picks. One is um, a company called AppSumo.com. They sell like discounted digital products uh, to entrepreneurs and freelancers, all sorts of different things. Um, They're run by a guy named uh, Noah Kagan, who's an early Facebook employee. So you can go to AppSumo.com. Another pick is uh, NathanBerry.com. He sells, um, he does a lot of different things. His most recent company is called ConvertKit and they do really great simplified, uh, automated email marketing. I don't know if you guys have, have heard of him. His company is like shot through the roof in the last year. It's a pretty remarkable story. Um, I use his stuff or I use uh, ConvertKit for my email marketing. It's like Infusion software, about a hundred times easier to use. And then I'll, if you don't mind, I'll pitch my last thing is you can go to my website, trevormckendrick.com. I'm creating a course specifically for developers for them to learn about taxes and accounting so that, you know, they don't get stuck with a, a huge tax bill. So you can go just uh, check that out. Um, I also talk about uh, specifically for developers, uh, how I made my apps, um, how I sold them, you know, how I signed licensing deals with the content owners or these big publishers and a bunch of different things that um, people seem to like uh, over the years. So those are my, uh, those are my three picks. Excellent. Philip. Okay. Coffee drinkers who want a coffee experience in uh, from the world of uh, tea leaves, this is for you. <laughs> <laughs> I like Pereira teas. They're a uh, sort of a fermented tea leaf. And particularly, I like the uh, cheap, low-end, non-fancy Pereira teas, which is kind of gross. I think they're, if you imagine a bunch of tea leaves and kind of making a compost pile with them, and then letting them sit there for a while and then uh, packaging them up and selling them to people like me. That's kind of what poor tea is like. But it's, it's got this rich, smoky taste. And the fancier it is, the less I like it because the, it's uh, kind of lighter and more delicate tasting. I like, if I'm going to have some tea, I like it to kind of remind me of coffee. And I'm going to put this in the sh- this link in the show notes. It's, it's a link to something by Lux Tea. It's these little cakes. That's the other thing about poor tea is it gets pressed into these cakes. Some of them are quite big and you kind of break off a little bit and make your tea with that. Uh, but these are individually wrapped. They are artificially aged, meaning they're aged with heat rather than just putting them in the big compost pile. And they are awesome. So that's my pick for this week. Uh, check the link in the show notes if that sounds appealing at all to you because when you brew these things, they come out super black, like kind of like coffee. Oh, sounds good. Mm. I'm a tea drinker, so that that sounds very attractive. Nice. So for my pick, uh, my pick is uh, Safari Books Online. And um, 
I only recently decided to give it a shot. And the reason is that many, many years ago, uh, when I started my column for Linux Journal, I have a friend who was doing a magazine column. And he told me that one of the great perks about running a magazine column is you don't actually have to buy books. You can contact publishers. And I mean, assuming it's actually in the field that you're writing about, you can say, look, I write this magazine column. I'm always interested in finding new books to recommend to my readers and uh, review. And, and like, assuming you actually do review them and assuming you actually do mention them, then they're happy to keep sending you books. But over the last few years, publishers have gotten, uh, shall we say, stingier and stingier with doing that. And so whereas my bookshelves are full of slightly graying and getting digi books, they don't have as many new ones. So I've actually started to buy more and more books, and especially ebooks. And I finally realized, you know, people here talking about Safari, I heard about it when it launched oh so many years ago. I should give it a shot. And I am really impressed. Maybe I've only been using it for two weeks now, and I will find all sorts of holes in it. But they have an incredible library of stuff. It's not just O'Reilly. Um, it's really a, a very large, uh, wide variety of publishers. The interface seems pretty good. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's basically like a, a Netflix for technical books. So you pay a monthly fee or an annual fee, which gives you a discount. And then you have access to just a huge, huge, huge library of books that you can read on your browser or on a mobile app. And again, like I've been researching stuff for a course that I've been teaching, and I feel kind of foolish for having bought a bunch of books over the last month because I could have just gotten them through Safari. So uh, it's definitely worth a worth a look if you enjoy reading and need to research lots of lots of technical stuff. And I guess that brings this episode to a close. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us and giving us lots of insights into why the IRS is not scary um, and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, other things we could do to take care of our businesses and. Uh, Thanks again, and we will see you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.